Father, what a, a, a high time for the church to engage in, this time where we take our Bibles and we open them and we read them together and we study them and we look for the Spirit of God to do a marvelous ministry in our lives to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. We ask you, O oh God, to uh, hide the messenger behind the cross and that you would uh, exalt your own son through the message this morning, that there would be a clarity of understanding of the text of Scripture and that having better comprehended the text, that we would also know what that looks like, uh, what implications uh, that has for our lives as we go to school with the Apostle Paul for prayer, that you would teach us to be better prayer warriors. And as your disciples asked so many years ago, teach us to pray. God, we would mimic their prayer that you would teach us that the saints at Newtown Bible Church would know how to commune with their God through prayer and make much of this sacred time that you've afforded your own beloved children through Christ, empowered by your Spirit. Orchestrate uh, uh, the, the message that it would bring you glory and the good of your people, that you would sanctify us through your word, which is truth. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Let me invite you to join me this morning back in Ephesians chapter 3. I know it's been a number of weeks. I don't remember how long, uh, but we are in Ephesians chapter 3. We'll finish chapter 3 today. In Ephesians 1.1 through Ephesians 3.13, which is what we have already ventured through together, Paul gives the basic truths about the Christian life, who we are in Christ, and the great unlimited resources we have in Him. Our union with Christ makes us fellow heirs with Christ, according to Romans 8.17, and to be of one spirit with Him, 1 Corinthians 6.17. Writer of Hebrews uh, brings in his witness to say he's not ashamed to call us brothers and that he'll, he will share with us all that he possesses, an, unlimit, an, an inheritance imperishable and undefiled, 1 Peter 1, 4. From verse 14 of Ephesians 3 onward through the rest of the letter, we are exhorted to claim and live those truths. Verses 14 to 21 that's before us this morning, we see Paul's tremendous example in this. And throughout the rest of the chapters, chapters 4 through 6, we see Paul's precepts on what this looks like. Paul prays for the Ephesian believers that they would live in full power and effectiveness of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, which he wrote about in chapter 1, verse 3. So this is his prayer for enablement in verses 14 to 21, his prayer for enablement. It's not the first prayer we've studied in uh, the book of Ephesians. Uh, earlier on in chapter 1, we had his first prayer, which was that, uh, that the, the saints at Ephesus would, would know their power, unlimited resources through Christ that He's lavished upon them, and in the second prayer that they would learn to use it. <clears throat> now, Paul models so many things for us. He models prayer for us. He models pastoral ministry. He pastored this congregation for a few years. 
And through his example here, we see kind of a, a twofold task of the shepherd. Shepherd is to be telling the saints who they are in Christ. Week in, week out, this is who you are in Christ. That, that to, have, to, to be in Christ is to have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, and to be outside of Christ is to have nothing and to be hopeless without God in this world. And so the shepherd's task is to tell the saints who they are in Christ and then to urge them to live like it. Saints, are you living like you're in Christ? Do you understand your spiritual power and are you using it? Paul wants to bring you and I to maximum power as fully functioning believers. That's his shepherding task in their lives and in ours today. When, when, we'll, when we get to Ephesians 4, shortly, in a couple of weeks, we see the job description of uh, uh, the pastor taking place, that he's to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So what does he do? He teaches the saints who they are in Christ and how to live in light of who they are in Christ. We saw in prayer 1, in chapter 1, his passionate prayer for them to know God intimately, especially as they comprehend the hope of his calling the wealth of God's gracious inheritance and the surpassing greatness of His power toward them. And, and here we are in Ephesians 3, and our last study together, verses 2 to 13, was Paul's inspired rabbit trail. He, he starts off in, in, in the first verse of the chapter, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, hyphen, and then he goes on for uh, phrase after phrase. And so this morning, we find Paul re- returning to what he started in verse 1, before his parentheses. In that parentheses that we studied last time, he explained his stewardship of the mystery of the Gentiles, that this was a unique ministry that God had entrusted to him. God made him a steward of being a, an apostle to the Gentiles. And so he spent verses 2 to 13 fleshing that out. And having fleshed that out, he can, we can pray with him more intelligently and understand his passion in prayer. He developed the doctrine of the mystery of the church where, where Jew and Gentile believers are positionally one new person. One new person. That's uh, chapter 2, verse 15. One person. The body of Christ. And now he's praying that they will be united experientially. So not, not only are they positionally united in Christ, but experientially that it would be fleshed out in their relationships with each other of Christ's love to each other. That as believers, they would know the power of Christ's love vertically with Him and experience it for one another horizontally. So Paul prays for the Ephesian church and in so doing instructs us in our prayer lives. Would you notice three elements of prayer so that you might grow in the knowledge of and communion with and expression of Jesus Christ? Follow along as I read for us in Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason, ought to sound familiar because that's exactly how verse 1 starts off. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You'll notice that there's an, uh, an abbreviated outline in your bulletin. I don't usually think ahead to have Trish put that in there, but uh, we, we want to start off with, with our approach to prayer that uh, Paul exemplifies for us, our approach to prayer as he adores God in verses 14 and 15. Notice how he approaches God in this adoration. He starts off for this reason, again, resuming where he left off in verse 1 before his digression. I bow my knees. Now stop for a moment and and think about what that conveys, bowing my knees, conveying worship and submission to God. In the similar vein to other faithful saints who worship the one true God. It doesn't matter if you stay in the New Testament or, or, or look in the, the Older Testament. In Romans 11.4, Paul quotes 1 Kings 19.18, where God tells Elijah that there are still 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You know, this signifies worship and allegiance or in uh, Romans 14.11, he quotes Isaiah 45.23, where, where God declares that He alone is God and every knee will bow to Him. Every, knee, every person is going to pay homage to the Son, willingly or unwillingly then. One of the many religious affections is a life of humility that's devoted to prayer. And not just the practice, but the audience of the God who reveals Himself on the pages of Scripture. We worship, we serve, and we depend upon Him. And so in prayer, we're, we're submitting our wills to His plan. We're adoring the Creator whom we, by faith in His Son, declare our, our Father. So whether it's your position is, is on your knees, or we find positions in Scripture of lying prostrate or your head between your knees, or standing, that it's worshiping in prayer the one true God, the God of heaven and earth, the Father. And though we might initially think that he's talking about uh, the, the special relationship of the saints with their Redeemer, it might not be as you expect. Though the family idea is rich here in the context of Ephesians, I think he's speaking more widely of all who have their origin in God. Some see it only as a reference of, uh, to the redeemed. Only the redeemed can call God Father. But when you look at the account in Scripture of God being the Father of all mankind by virtue of creation, God is the origin. God is the head. God is the start. God is the initiator of it all. And so there is that term Father that refers to Him, not salvifically, but because He created all that is. He's Father to all by virtue of creation, though He's only a spiritual saving Father to believers. In verse uh, number 9, we were told that uh, this, this one God is the one who created all things. 
who is alive and he's acting in the present time rather than the one who has died. You look at some of the accounts uh, when the prophets of the Old Testament are, are uh, mocking uh, false teachers and their false gods. Who, you know, uh, when they make their, uh, they, they use the same wood that they make their gods out of to uh, fuel their fires. You remember some of those mockeries? And, uh, and you might have to put a shim in underneath him lest he fall over. But this is not the one that we address in prayer. We're talking to the one who, as he wraps up the chapter, is able to do exceedingly abundantly above, where Paul has to coin his own terminology to try to capture how great and grandiose and majestic God is. He is the one able to do exceedingly abundantly, the one who can just speak the world into existence and exert no effort in doing so. The sovereign creator of heaven and earth and the sea that we read about in Acts 4.24, this is the one that we bow the knee to in prayer. This is not the one who cannot accomplish that which his children bring to him, but the one who is more acquainted with the details of their needs than they are themselves. And yes, by virtue of him being our spiritual father by faith, won't he give bread to his children who ask? As we move from our approach to prayer and adoring God to the appeal, second point of, that we try to uh, hang the truth upon this morning, notice four aspects of divine prayer available to Christians in this extended appeal. In verses 16 to 19, we see our appeal in prayer where, where Paul's asking for their experience and their expression of the love of Christ. And there are, there are four particular aspects we want to consider in these verses. The first, in verse 16, is this inner strength. If you're taking notes, right, jot that down, letter A, inner strength. Here's, here's the petition, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. The one request is strengthen the inner person. Beloved, what do you pray for? Look at your prayer lists. What have they consisted of? And even before we consider his request, right before that, Paul gives a little qualifier that God's giving, you know, so if he's asking for something from God, he's going to qualify that the one who gives does so according to the wealth of his glory. Isn't that a neat detail that Paul gives us by inspiration of the Spirit of God? That is to say, he doesn't give out of his wealth, but according to his wealth. Thus, the entirety of his riches in his divine account he gives. We've already seen some of that in the, earlier, in the early chapter of Ephesians about this lavishness. Uh, in uh, chapter 1, verse, verse 7, the riches. In, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. And when God, when God pardoned sinners, He didn't spare. You know, it's like, oh, I wonder if this one's covered. You know, like, like He didn't consider that. This is what God pours out on believers, Ephesians 1, 6. And all of it's spoken of singularly. It's without spare. It's lavishness. It's superabundant. So it's not God just given a couple of tokens or His His tithe of, uh, out of his wealth to his children, it's according to. So the entirety of those riches 
at the disposal of his children. And what he does here is he anchors his forthcoming request in the very character and essence of God's being, the glory of his grace that has been freely bestowed on the beloved. And he uses two distinct words to hang this truth on, two distinct words in his request for power. He, he, he uses the word power, dunamis, speaking of ability or, or the capability of acting. And he uses the second powerful word, strengthened. Now, in the, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it, it translates several Hebrew words, one of which means to grow firm. Now, we like that. Uh, we, we can understand that. You know, when you've got a, uh, a mamby-pamby plant that's barely surviving in the garden, you know, and it's kind of wilted, but it's not brown yet, and, and then you've got one that's uh, growing new blossoms and new, new, new stems and everything, there's, there's a difference there. That's the idea of this, this, this term strengthened, growing firm or, or strong. And the, the Greek grammar reinforces the idea that it's, that it's God who gives the strength. It's not something self-endowed. This goes against all philosophy of uh, bootstrap theology. You know, I can just uh, strengthen myself and get myself through this, which I'm going to address later on in the message. So God's plan is for you to be strengthened with His Spirit with the ability to act. He's not lacking in that ability. And this strength that He showers in abundance upon His children is in the inner man. It's an inner strength as opposed to a physical strength. That is to say, when Paul gives his one request for the saints of God at Ephesus, the one thing on his prayer list is that God would make them innerly strong. In their heart, in their mind, that's of principal concern and focus for him. Whereas the outer body is, is wasting away, the outer is, is decaying and dying, some of us more rapidly than others, right? But the inner man is growing. It's being, it's being fortified. There's growth. There's stability. The longer we know Christ, the greater his unrich- we comprehend the riches that we have in Christ. And the storms that earlier on in our Christian experiences would have upset our apple cart, we can weather through his spirit because he's grown us in our faith. All who know Christ need inner strength to cope with the stresses and the pressures of everyday life in a fallen world. Do I hear an amen from any? We do. We need it. And there's a lot of people trying to address this, uh, um, these pressures of everyday life. One, uh, one way that people try to do it in uh, uh, secular psychology is address that which, which your MD can't deal with, you know, the, kind of the soul issues that they don't want to mention that there is a soul. Uh, I was reading an article, uh, Dr. Shirley, uh, uh, or actually his name was Martin Gross in uh, the Psychological Society, questions the very foundations of psychology and psychiatry, suggesting that prestige and and financial gain are the real driving forces behind them. Even more significantly, however, he asserts that psychology and psychiatry have no answers to the mental and emotional ills that they are used to treat. You know, so even though I'm using psychology to illustrate the point 
that it's the inner man that needs strength and not the outer man, and it's only Scripture and the Spirit of God that does that, not the secular words of man. You know, they're trying to address the soul of man. So whether it's through psychology or uh, some of the uh, desires in uh, our world today, with, uh, we'll, we'll deal with uh, violence through gun control. Well, it's not going to deal with the, the, the heart issues of sinners who are created in the image of God. We need a biblical view of the soul. So, continuing on this article, uh, Martin Gross concludes, not only do they not have answers to the mental and emotional ills that they're, use, that they're trying to treat, but he says every person is incurably neurotic by nature and should be left alone with his neuroses. From the purely human standpoint from which he writes, Gross's pessimistic conclusions perfectly sound because man's basic nature is indeed universally and incurably flawed. But the flaw is not a poor cultural conformity, and it's not all these other neuroses that are come up with. It's a very simple and very short word that the Bible addresses. It's called sin. That's the flaw of which all neuroses and all other problems are but symptoms. The flaw is in our inner man, where man himself cannot perform a cure, and he must have a sovereign and gracious God to intervene to do the kind of heart replacement surgery needed through the new birth. Only God can reach and cure the inner man. And that is where he most wants to work. His work begins at the moment of our salvation, and he, he continues that work in, in sanctification and will not put it down to glorification. There is growth. The divine nature imparted to the believer at salvation is at the core of the inner man and the base from which the Spirit can change our thinking process so that in spite of bodily illnesses that may be all over us and the pressures of living in a fallen world may be overwhelming, we can overwhelmingly conquer in the inner man through it. I thought a doctor was going to fall off their chair this week when I assaulted their view on… Uh, I, I rejected their view of the subconscious. I said, you know what? The Bible… <laughs> says that you're a conscious being created, and not this victim mentality in, in, in psychology. And uh, I, I thought they were going to have a heart attack. But that's what, what Paul is addressing here. The biggest need for the church at Newtown Bible Church is for strength, spiritual vitality of the inner man. So if this inner person is the object of God's working... Why do you and I spend so much time polishing the brass banners of a sinking ship? You look at our prayer list. You know, if we were to try to balance things out and try to figure out where we spend most of the time praying, you see how off-base and unbalanced our prayers have often been. I'm not saying God doesn't care for the physical needs, that He doesn't care about the broken bones and broken bodies and the concerns of today which are overwhelming to us. But when we look at the vivid portraits in Scripture painted by inspiration of the Spirit of God, you look at one in Romans 7, Paul's struggle against sin. This is real. You, could, you can cut it like a knife how real this struggle was for him to stop sinning and start doing more righteousness. It's a battle. It's a struggle in the inner man, the indwelling remaining sin. Or if we were to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 
particularly verses 7 to 16. Matter of fact, let's do that. 2 Corinthians, to use this biblical illustration, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is marvelous. Look at me, beginning verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power... Again, this is Paul's prayer for enablement, Paul's prayer for power to the Ephesians in Ephesians 3, and that's exactly what he's talking about here. The greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. He says, you know, when we look at our experience, uh, verse 8, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. You know, he's just talking about the perpetual pressures of life. It's always going on. There's no let up this side of eternity, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Brothers, sisters, let's follow Paul's example in our prayers for each other that God would strengthen us with power in the inner man. This is the emphasis of Scripture Why in the world are we not fervently petitioning Him night and day to grow us and also to do, uh, to to help us to deliver on our workout regime and discipline ourselves unto godliness? You know, the the, uh, weekly Lord's Lord's Day attendance, the spiritual service with our giftedness, the daily devotions, the whole enchilada that we'd be petitioning Him fervently to help us be faithful to that. You know, there's even one more uh, biblical example we would use. We're not going to turn there because we'll, uh, we might get there in our Ephesians series. Remember how Ephesians ends in chapter 6? Spiritual warfare. So he, he just once more reiterates the necessity, the utmost necessity of spiritual growth and strength in the inner man. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading an article on the uh, Gospel Coalition Uh, entitled, God Will Give You More Than You Can Handle. And I hope that that doesn't sit quite right with you. Uh, That will give me hope that you've learned some Scripture. Uh, But, you know, when when Christians are going through difficulty, other Christians can make some of the strangest claims in trying to comfort the suffering. They say in the article, We might turn to conventional wisdom instead of Scripture and end up saying something like, don't worry, this won't happen in your life if God didn't didn't think you could bear it. The sufferer may object, head shaken and hands up, but you insist, look seriously, the Bible promises God won't ever give you more in life than you can handle. Stop for a moment. Does God say that? He does not. But that's what conventional wisdom constantly says to us. You've promised the sufferer what the Bible does not. 
that he won't give you more than you can handle. As the article continues on, towards the end, uh, he puts the, uh, the spotlight on the Apostle Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians, time when God gave him more than he could bear. In a letter to the Corinthians that he wrote, he says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia, for we are so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. 2 Corinthians 1.8. Mark it down. That's the Apostle Paul himself. I was at the end of myself and passed there. God gave me more than I could handle. End of point. He says... Uh, in the next verse, verse 2 Corinthians 1, nine, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Remember those times that you've been there? Like, this is the end. There's, there can't be any, uh, you know, the, the light at the end of my tunnel here is just going to be the train running over me. Uh, but when he writes to the Corinthians, he makes this point to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So why does God give His saints more than they can handle so that they'll top, stop trying to handle it and let Him handle it? You might not consider overwhelming sufferings to be light and momentary. Sometimes they seem days and weeks and months and they, there's no let up. There's never any, any hope. In the middle of affliction, sometimes the most difficult thing to hold on to is that eternal vision. So Paul is trying to help the Corinthians Get that eternal vision. God will give you more than you can handle, but He's trying to maximize your perspective that He hasn't given you more than He can handle so that our adequacy might not be in ourselves, but in Him and Him alone so that He gets all the boasting and all the glory. And I think that's kind of the point of what He's getting at here in, in Ephesians 3 when, he, when He's praying of utmost importance that our adequacy would be in Him. Remember when... When Paul prayed three times, Lord, just, just take this thorn away. You know, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul wasn't spiritually defeated or depressed in the inner man over his weaknesses. He depended on the Spirit to fill life with divine power. So, brethren, lay hold of that. Let's lay hold of that this morning as we, as we see the inspired Word of God before us uh, exemplified through Paul as he prayed that God would grant you according to the riches of His glory, which is so vast, that He would strengthen us with power through His Spirit in the inner man, even if the inner man caters and cowers and falls apart. So there's that inner strength. If you want to mark down a second phrase in the next verse, verse 17, mark down indwelling Christ. Indwelling Christ. This is the result. So if the request is inner strength, the result is the indwelling Christ. Now, wait a minute, you might say. Christ already dwells within. As we've already studied in Ephesians, Christ is the one who dwells in the believer, and I'd heartily agree with you. I'd heartily agree with you. But notice that little caveat that he gives there, that qualifier, that he would grant you uh, oh, excuse me, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So he's not talking positionally. He's not speaking theologically. He's speaking experientially here by faith, by means of faith. So it's not that Christ is not already dwelling in believers, but there would be that greater unfolding of the recognition of the indwelling Christ. As we're being strengthened in the inner man, that first request 
there is a growing knowledge and awareness and submission to the indwelling Christ. The longer we know Christ, the more like Him we become as we grow in Christ. This, this uh, dwelling, or you could even translate it settling down or being at home in, is that Christ is the very center of believers' lives, not the periphery that we can get so wrapped up on. That He is the constant controlling factor in our attitudes and in our conduct. And yet, we're not going to achieve the realization of this indwelling Christ if we're trying to put up with, with sin at the same time and disobedience rather than yielding every part to the Lord. In his booklet, My Heart, Christ's Home, Robert Munger pictures the Christian life as a house through which Christ Jesus goes from room to room in the library, which is the mind. Jesus finds trash and all sorts of worthless things, which he proceeds to throw out and replace with his word. In the dining room of appetite, he finds many sinful desires listed on the worldly menu. In the place of such things as prestige and materialism and lust, he puts humility, meekness, love, and all the other virtues for which believers are to hunger and thirst after. He goes through the living room of fellowship where he finds many worldly companions and activities, through the workshop where only toys are being made, into the closet where hidden sins are kept, and so on through the entire house. Only when he had cleaned every room, closet, and corner of sin and foolishness could he settle down and be at home. That's the gist. You remember in the Gospel of John, when, uh, when Jesus speaks in John 14 and verse number 23, he says characteristic. Again, if we were talking in terms of uh, religious affections or what manifests that I'm a believer, one of those manifestations is uh, that we're not just practicing sin like we used to. It's not that we don't sin. Instead of disobedience, obedience is our new default setting in life. And in John 14, 23, Jesus answered, said to him, if anyone loves me, it's easy to profess you love Jesus. Anyone likes to say that I follow Christ, right? He says, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. That dwelling presence only exists where sin does not. And as we're constantly confessing our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As he dwells on the throne of our hearts, he enlightens, according to chapter 1, verse 18. He gives integrity and worship, chapter 5, verse 19. And as he resides on the throne of our hearts, he's the sole motivation for obedience, Ephesians 6, 5. Now, as we're trying to grow in our understanding of the indwelling Christ, there's uh, two words he uses here, rooted and grounded. <laughs> so if anybody is allowed to mix metaphors, you know, if I was writing an article and mixing metaphors, uh, the editor would scream at me with a uh, red, red pen or highlighter. But uh, since Paul was inspired by the Spirit of God, he can mix metaphors. He gives us two metaphors uh, as he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded. There's the, there's the mixed metaphors. One from agriculture and the other from architecture. But the two are speaking of the same issue. 
They're kind of used synonymously. So whether you're talking about being firmly rooted or having a sure foundation, both are testifying to being anchored in love. You might wonder, well, what love's being spoken of here? Is this, the, uh, is this God's love? Is this believer's love? Just nod. Uh, um, though I think the horizontal love towards brethren is undeniably the overflow of being loved by God. The former is the main gist of Paul's point here. When Paul writes to the Colossians, remember he uses these same terms, rooted and built up in Christ, Colossians 2.7. He'll expound more of what this means in the, in the next verse. But this, this root and this foundation of love refers to God having... Remember what we unpacked in chapter 1? God chose them in eternity past. He made them a heritage. He sealed them with His Holy Spirit. He made them alive and He raised them and He he seated them in the heavenlies and placed them equally in one new person, the body of Christ. The origin of all love is God Himself who is love. So whether it's love for the brethren or God's love, you always go back to the source anyways. That Christ would would dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So the request is strengthening the inner man. The result is the indwelling Christ, that firm knowledge apprehended by faith. Notice the third, verse 18, incomprehensible love. This is a, a third aspect of this power that Paul prays for. Incomprehensible love. Notice again how he said it that you might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. So, as these, these verses are all intertwined, you've you got the request in verse 6 for in his strength, the result, verse 17, rooted and grounded in the reality of the indwelling Christ. And here is this purpose. The purpose is that we would comprehend it all. Comprehend it with all the saints meaning to seize or lay hold of, to make it your own. Don't let this just be some theological knowledge on the bookshelf of your life. But you mentally comprehend and understand. And the added dimension that Paul adds, especially in this rich context of life in the body, is that this comprehension of the love of God goes on within the body, not without the body. When we learn about God's love, we learn about God's love together. We learn of the riches of His great love, and, the, and then we demonstrate that love to one another that all the world might see. Remember in John 13, Jesus talked. He gives the example of servanthood in the upper room, and He says, as you obey Me in this example by selfless and sacrificial service to one towards another, as the onlooking world sees life in the body and the invisible God made visible in His church, they'll have no doubt they'll glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let me add a little shepherding point here. Growth in the individual believer cannot occur in isolation. It must be accomplished in the context of life together in the body. You can't miss that in the book of Ephesians. There's been a lot of 
creativity that's been applied by commentators and spectators alike as to the significance of all four of these words in, in verse 18, the, the breadth and length and height and depth and what they all stand for. They're probably not used in opposition, but to, just add, uh, to add difference, but all used synonymously to speak of the vastness of this love. Not thoroughness, but the vastness of comprehension. Kind of the same point he made uh, in Romans 8.39 when he talks about the height and the depth of the love of Christ. That's the same phraseology going on here. Width, depth. His love is so enormous to comprehend, we're going to spend a lifetime trying to unpack the love of God. So we see his request, his result, and the purpose. But one final purpose tucked in in verse 19. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So in verse 19, when he talks, he specifies that this is the love he's talking about. It's not just brotherly love that demonstrates itself, but finds its root in the love of Christ itself. This is his final purpose, that we would know it. The idea of not of acquiring th- uh, theological, but more particularly experiential knowledge. To know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. That, uh, that word surpasses, hooperbalo, can be translated in various ways, to throw beyond or extraordinary, exceeding, or surpassing. I like the word immeasurable because in, a, in a 2 Corinthians 9, 14, he talks about surpassing grace. It's grace that though you read about it in Scripture and you can understand to a, to a, to a degree, you're going to spend a lifetime unpacking it. It's surpassing grace. And when he talks about God's power in, in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 19, it's, it's the immeasurable greatness of His power. You think you understand power when you look upon the Son of God who was raised from the dead? That's just one example. Though it's the fullest example. In Ephesians 2.7, he talks about immeasurable riches of His grace. And so here he's talking about immeasurable knowledge or surpassing knowledge. You remember the old... Him, the love of God, how the third stanzas, we, we, we sung this to start Sunday school this morning. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless, there's our term, and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. To comprehend the love of Christ is beyond the capacity of any human being. Once we're gloriously saved, we embarked on a lifetime journey of unfolding and employing in our service the wondrous love of God in Christ. That is the motivating factor. And so his prayer for them that we should emulate for each other, that we would know the love of Christ, which is of immeasurable knowledge. 
that you'd be filled up to all the fullness of God. Filled up occurs uh, four times in Ephesians. In, uh, back in chapter 1, he talks about the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And over in chapter 4, in verse 13, he says, he says that we're, we're going about this uh, horizontal relationship with each other, life in the body, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. The fullness of Christ. Teen Sunday School, I think, just got done uh, studying about the communicable attributes of God, the communicable of those that, you know, there's, there's God's uh, incommunicable attributes, those that make God God, and those that His followers are to demonstrate. His love, His holiness. I think this illustration adequately uh, captures this fullness. If you uh, take a little thimble out of my uh, sewing basket down in my basement, and uh, you take a, take a thimble full of water from the lake. A thimble is essentially filled with la- the lake's water. The whole lake won't fit in that little thimble. It, though it contains all the particles and all the little bacteria and everything that characterizes the lake water, can't fit it all in there. So when, when, when God commands us to be like Him and to demonstrate his invisible attributes visibly to the world in the body. We don't become God, but we mirror Him in all of His glorious attributes as His image bearers. Godly wisdom, godly love, godly holiness, godly graciousness, that the world would see God through His servants. And so Paul prays that you'd be filled up with that. Surpassing knowledge, yes, but be, be being filled by that. Paul's prayer for this is to be experientially realized in each believer. If positionally you are one, with Christ, one in Christ, experientially you are to love one another in Him. Theologically, the two former enemies, the Jews, the Gentiles, now would make up this one entity, the church, the body. But there are so many practical overflows which he'll spend the next three chapters setting up. You see, this prayer sets us up for the rest of the book. Prayer one was that they'd know God's love and power. Prayer two is the plea for them to comprehend Christ's love, which in turn causes them to love fellow saints. Because you think about the opposite of love for the saints. One put it this way. He said, he said, a divided church, instead of being a sign of God's conquering power in Christ, reflects the negative message of a victory by the forces of evil. We hasten with the last point, point three, our ascription of praise. Ascribing glory to God, verses 20 and 21. And if you wanted a a fifth aspect of divine power that we already looked at, uh, call it immeasurable power. So he's got a little doxology. He raises himself in worship in his prayer life here. And this doxology is a fitting end to not only chapter three, but the whole first half of the book of Ephesians serving us as a transition to the rest of the book. We transition from the request for the saints to praise God, come these words for, for power. He, he says that you would, uh, he commits himself to him able to do far abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, 
according to the power that works within us. It goes back to that word power, dunamis, and even divine energy, energeo, which we saw back in chapter 1, verse, verse 11. Remember when he said that uh, you are predestined? That God set a plan in motion to redeem sinners. And that plan of God was backed by the very energy or working of God to bring that redemption to pass. It is absolute. It is not a question mark. That's the same emphasis he's given here. This divine energy, this active power of God that we already saw back in chapter 1. His capability and his ability are unrivaled. And he expresses it in that phrase far more abundantly. And I think that 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 phrase is far too docile for the terminology Paul uses. Able to do beyond anything. Every minute thing that we might think or ask. You could even translate it to the one who is able to do beyond everything very far in excess of that which we ask or think. So when we pray to God to do in fellow believers' lives far surpassing what they could ask or think. We're praying biblically. You know, I was trying to put thoughts together on the plane yesterday from my daughter's graduation party, and, and uh, in the card was part of this prayer. You know, that, that I can be biblical in my prayers for my daughter, that God would do exceeding abundantly. Beloved, are you praying for your brothers and sisters at Newtown Bible Church, that God would strengthen them in the inner man and that He would do in them and through them exceeding abundantly. And He concludes, to Him be glory. He alone is to be glorified forever and ever, beginning in this age and continuing into eternity. And He ends it with an amen. Truly, let it be. It's as if he says, let me repeat it and just reiterate one more time. That amen does all the reiteration of what he just said. Chapters 1 through 3, we see the position of the Christian. Chapters 4 through 6, the practice of the Christian. Realize that success in unpacking and implementing our resource in Christ will be in direct proportion to our prayer life and communion as we contemplate and demonstrate the love of God one for another. Would you pray with me? Father, as we look to the Lord's table, we would pray that you would teach us to adore you in our our prayers, to make much of you in our prayers, that they would be biblically centered so as Scripture sets you on your throne in all of your glorious splendor, that our prayers would do that as well. That we would learn to worship at your feet and extol your greatness. Like Paul, we would make a request as well for you to strengthen us in the inner man. Lord, would you enlarge our comprehension and our, our expression of the very love of Christ to yourself and to our fellow believers? Lord, would you also make us doxological in our outlook on life It is so easy to be like the children of Israel on the backside of the desert, murmuring, complaining, saying how great it was to have the leeks and garlics in Egypt land under slavery. God, keep our lips back from that. Shut our mouths unless it's for praise of your greatness. May we lead a a God-centered life, focusing on your greatness and your lavish grace and your exceptional goodness. 
as we contemplate the body that was broken, as we think about the blood that was shed for sinners, we thank you for the love of God manifested, demonstrated to sinners such as us. Extract the continual worship for us in the remainder of this service, we pray in Christ's name, amen.